Hey, Emily. Hey, Stephanie. You uh, want to do a podcast? Absolutely. Welcome to Cycle Chats, a podcast to destigmatize what it means to be a woman. This is episode 71, Breast Cancer Awareness. In this episode, we are finally speaking to a woman who is all about self-care education and inspiration for life beyond breast cancer diagnosis. She specializes in scars, lymphatic support, and mind-body connection. It's your breast cancer prevention self-care specialist, Amy Hartle. Amy, thank you so much for coming to the show. We did reschedule this one, so it's like, finally, we are here. And we are so excited because we were really looking forward to this talk. Thank you. I am so happy to be here. And yes, I'm really glad that we finally got our calendars to line up and can make it happen. Yeah. It's funny because Steph and I were talking about like health today and the fact that you really have to start your prevention and your awareness of so many things earlier on in your life instead of waiting until it's happened. And then you're like, well, I wish I would have done ABC. So I think this is a really important conversation because most of our listeners are, you know, in their mid twenties to up to their forties. And I feel like that's the age that we got to start taking real good care of ourselves so that our futures look nice and bright and clean and hospital free. Absolutely. I want to start off the conversation like I always do. I need to know what made you get into this field. My story. Absolutely. Well, so most women or most people, I should say, who are diagnosed with breast cancer typically don't see it coming you know, which is why I'm really glad we're having this conversation, especially with your audience demographic, because truly most people who are diagnosed don't have any kind of predisposed, like genetic predisposition, or they don't have, you know, maybe high risk factor. For me, that's actually not the case. I think breast cancer really first kind of took a stronghold in my life when I was 12. My mom was diagnosed. She was only 38 at the time, which is definitely on the younger side. And, you know, it was just, it was just a life altering experience, certainly for her, but even for me at that age to see her go through that. I was 12, my brother was three and my sister was six months old. So she had a lot on her plate. You know, my dad worked full time. She was the stay at home mom. It just, it was a real challenge. And what I didn't really catch on to until I was just, you know, maybe more like in high school was that my grandmother had had breast cancer before her, my great grandmother, my great, great grandmother. So it definitely ran in our family, but my mom being diagnosed at a younger age, they were all like in their sixties and seventies. And with my mom being being diagnosed like premenopausal before 40, that really was a like a big red flag that something was going on in our family and in our genes. And so I was considered high risk all of my life. I'm I'm 47. So this was really before genetic testing came to light, you know, before they discovered really, really knew what the BRCA gene mutations were and, and all these other ones that have come along or have been discovered. And so I had my first mammogram at 23. And then like annually from 30. So for me, breast cancer was always a likelihood, obviously not maybe knowing when, but just knowing that it seemed to have such a strong impact in our family. And because of that, when I was in my mid thirties, I went to massage therapy school. I decided to change careers and leave the corporate world. And I was really lucky to discover that there's this whole world called oncology massage. I was exposed to it as part of my, you know, my foundational training. And when I realized that there was an opportunity to work with and care for people during a time, during such a challenging time, you know, during these true health crisis and to maybe offer them a little bit of compassionate touch, comfort, 
discomfort, help them feel better in their body, even maybe when they were in active treatment or after, you know, years out, it just hit me like it just was like a, you know, kind of like a a gut punch, like, wow, I thought about my mom, what if what if she had had that? What if that had been available to her when she was going through such a difficult time? And then I thought about myself, knowing that it could indeed be me one day. And so I was really just drawn to it. And as I pursued my training, and and that I really learned that I had a knack for it, you know, that that being with people who are facing either life threatening, or even life limiting illness, that I'm able to hold space for them. And I'm able to offer them something that they may not be able to find elsewhere. And so it's, it just, it just clicked and it it became, it definitely became my calling. I will say that when I was ultimately diagnosed myself in 2017, so I've been practicing, I've been in this work since 2012, but it was in 2017 when I received my own breast cancer diagnosis. And I really did have to do some thinking then I had to decide and, and really, you know, kind of look inward to see if. I could continue this work now that it was my own experience as well. Because the truth is, one of the things I learned is that there are some things you just can't know until you've been through them. Even for all of the family experience I had and the professional experience I had and the client interaction I had, it's still different going through it yourself. And so I had to take some time to think about, you know, could I continue in this line of work? And the answer was, you know, after I did some soul searching, the answer was absolutely yes. And it was really where I figured out I needed to be. And so since then, I have niched my practice down where I'm at the point where I'm only taking new clients who have a breast cancer diagnosis or history. Wow, that's heavy. I can imagine because like you kind of knew something was in the pipeline. Yeah. So I guess that the only thing I can really relate it to is like, Health issues run in my family pretty intensely. <laughs> so I am laughing because I realize as I start to hear these stories more and more, I don't think we'd really think it could happen to us until it does. Did you kind of, I don't want to say live in a delusion, but was it a, a shock when you got the diagnosis or were you kind of like, ah, this checks? Yeah, no. So you know, like I said, this was when I was really coming into the to the age of having to start getting monitored and everything. They were starting to do genetic testing, but because that was in the era of pre-existing conditions that could actually disqualify you from insurance and all of that. Mm-hmm. And it was really before a lot of people were starting to take proactive action, like in the form of prophylactic surgery. So my doctors really strongly advised against getting genetic tested, getting my testing done back then. Because they were basically, one, they were worried that it could impact my my insurance coverage. And two, they were kind of like, well, what are you going to do with that? Right now, luckily, a lot of those factors changed. But yeah, I think I tried to live as best I could without letting it be a constant worry. I would say it was more of a shadow. You know, I have a story I can remember very well being like 19 in college and with my my then boyfriend who actually became my first husband and just crying, like, you know, doing that college thing, right? Crying in a college in a parking lot, talking to him and saying, we can't get married because we're going to get married and have kids and I'm going to get cancer and I'm going to die and leave all of you. And, you know, that was a particularly maybe dramatic moment where I was feeling that fear. I certainly didn't live every day like that. I also probably in some ways railed against it a little bit. I mean, I smoked when I was in college and beyond. And I, you know, I did, I did all the things that like you're not people do (laughs) when you kind of feel, yeah. And like when you kind of feel invincible. Right. But I, you know, as I got older and as it got closer to an age where it 
seemed like, okay, like I'm, I'm now starting to get into this, like now I'm in my thirties and you know, that's when I quit smoking and was like, yeah, maybe I, I've got enough stacked against me. Maybe I actually need to start taking better care of myself. And so ultimately when I was died, by the time I was diagnosed, I had done genetic testing. My family had confirmed that we have the BRCA1 gene mutation. So we knew that we knew that my risk was very high. I was just getting to the point of starting to look into prophylactic surgery, but the diagnosis beat me to it. Mm. And so no, when, when it happened, it was not a surprise at all. It was still a little bit like shocking. You know, it wasn't like I could predict when it would happen. But for me, there was always a tiny part of me that kind of held out hope. I remember always thinking if I could just get to 50, I don't know why that marker, what that number was, but I could just remember thinking if I could just get to 50, then I could do like the prophylactic mastectomy and have my ovaries and fallopian tubes out because with this gene mutation, we also have a high risk of ovarian cancer, which is even more sinister in a lot of ways than yeah. breast. But ultimately that's not what happened. I was, I, you know, I was diagnosed and, and the upside was that because I was monitored so closely and because my team took all of my concerns very seriously, like I was getting checked every six months by that point. And so, you know, they took it very seriously when I said I had concerns and they did all of the imaging, you know, they went above and beyond, even when certain things like my first, my mammogram was clean, the ultrasound, they were like, oh, we really, we see something, but we're pretty sure it's just a cyst. Like, let's get your MRI done. You're due anyway. We'll get you that peace of mind. And then it was the MRI that showed that there was something there. So in some ways, when it finally happened, it was almost a little bit of a release because it was what I was gonna say it's almost like a relief because you don't feel like insane anymore like you think like yeah you're running in circles and you're like god finally something it connects weird (laughs) yeah and I mean it is and it was you know it was still it was very scary but because of my professional background I had a lot more information going into my my experience uh, for treatment and surgery choices and all of that than most people do in that way I felt very prepared. It became like, okay, let's, let's do this. I will say that I lived with a lot of anxiety most of my life. Like I would say generalized anxiety that probably wasn't helped by this fact. And one thing that I did for myself when I was diagnosed that I shied away from at first, but within a couple of weeks of realizing like how much was ahead of me, I started taking anti-anxiety. I started on Lexapro and that was probably one of the best things I've ever done for myself in my entire life. Like it was so amazing when I got to the point where I was like, wait, (laughs) I, I don't have to feel like a basket case all the time. Like I can actually, I mean, it was still scary and there were things about it that were very hard, but I ended up on such a better like level playing field. And on this side of of everything, I have been able to do things in my life that I never thought I would have done before because my anxiety always kept them at bay. And so, you know, interesting situation. And the hard part is I still have to worry about it. Like technically, like, yes, like I did all the surgeries and the treatments and I'm six years cancer free, no evidence of disease as far as we know. Unfortunately, there is always a chance of recurrence. So it's, you know, it's still kind of there. I just try not to focus on that fact as much. It reminds me, I have this image in my my head from my favorite book series, the His Dark Materials. And in the last book, it talks about how death is always with you. It comes into the world with you. And if you see it as your friend, it's the thing that takes you out. 
and it like yeah. changes your idea of death, like just that and and the image that they create in this book of like death is your shadow, but it's your friend and like you should welcome it with love. Like it came in and it, now it's going to lovingly take you out. So that's kind of the thought process that was going through my brain as you were talking is like you already had this information. So you were able to kind of make friends with it in a way until it was actually given. And then you go, okay, well, here are my options. I just got to find which way I want to go. I think that's absolutely, I mean, so many people don't have the information and that's what we're trying to do with our podcast is get people the information that they need so that there can be prevention and that there can be correct information out there so that people can start making the decisions that they need to so that they don't have to think about this in 10, 20 years, 30 years, no matter what it is. It's just really important. I wrote so, so many things down, but I know you brought up that genetically you have this in your family. So is that typically what happens or people just also get it randomly? Yeah, it's more often that it's random. And when I say random, so this is something I love the opportunity to educate on stuff like this. So thank you for this, because I do think there is a lot of, I don't want to say even misinformation, but confusion around stuff. So all cancer is genetic. The difference is there's because it comes from our genes. Cancer cells are actually mutated cells of our own, right? It's not like cancer is not a virus. It's not a bacteria. It is not something that comes from outside that we take it to us. So you can't, you know, you don't really, it's not like you get it or you don't catch it. So it is all genetic. The difference though, is it's not all hereditary. And so that's where like with these gene mutations that people have heard about, say most commonly the BRCA1 and BRCA2, also called BRCA1 and BRCA2. They're the most common, but they are there are many others out there that increase risk of breast cancer. And what that is, is basically we all have these genes it's the mutations that are different. So in the case of BRCA, the the BRCA gene helps the body actually fight off breast and ovarian cancers. But these particular, because my family, my, you know, we have this mutation, we're not equipped to fight it off like other people are. So it's actually, I want to say it's around 10% of people have a known genetic mutation or a strong family history, like a a strong hereditary link. Most people, I would say, actually, it's probably about 85% of people from a recent search I just did, 85% of people who get breast cancer really don't have a known increased risk. So that's basically just everybody, right? I mean, that they, that you don't have, not like, like my family where everyone and every woman in my mom's lineage had it. It just seems to be kind of come out of nowhere. And because of that, it's why it's so important for people to be aware that it doesn't, you know, I think a lot of people, when a lot, when a lot of people are diagnosed, they feel so blindsided. They're like, you know, and what they say is, but no one in my family ever had it before. So it's important to realize that everyone is susceptible to the potential of of a cancer. You know, women obviously are more, more likely to develop breast cancer. And so, you know, knowing what to look for, what you can do to reduce risk and how to stay alert is really important. What is the typical age that people do start getting that diagnosis? So the median age is still, I think, around 60 or 65. It's technically, you know, the older you get, the higher the likelihood that or the chance that you're going to have cancer. Cancer typically is something that happens as we age. However, we are seeing more and more cases of young diagnoses. And, you know, when I say young, I know people in their 20s who've been diagnosed, 30s, 40s, 
fifties. And because it's not the norm and because I think it's technically still 40 is the average age is, is like the start of getting an annual mammogram. Although I know for a while there was a push to change that to 50, which I'm highly against. But you know, if, if you are in your twenties or thirties and you're not eligible, at least through insurance to have an annual mammogram or your doctor doesn't ever bring it up to you, you have no family history. It's just as important to be aware of your body and not to assume that, well, this is something that might happen to me at 60. That's what my mom always said. She she assumed she would have breast cancer at some point because of our, our family history. She just always figured it would be in her 60s or 70s because that's what had happened to her mom, her grandma, and so on. And that's why when it happened when she was 38, it really caught her by surprise. Yeah, no, that would be surprising. That's why it's so important. You know, I listen to a bunch of different podcasts, but I I really like Armchair Expert with Dak Shepard. And I just love listening to him. He's just a very interesting person. And I, I think he relates to people really well. But he was talking about how in fitness, you like it's a whole thing now that you have to like think about how active you want to be in your senior years, and then basically have to calculate, okay, well, this is what I have to do to have that mobility later on. And it's so much like care that I think our brains as young millennials, it's so hard for us to understand that like, oh, we have to do a lot of work now to therefore be healthy later. Like that's such a hard pill to swallow. And when you're a child, like 20 below, you're invincible, baby. Nothing can happen. Oh, yeah. So yep. it's like not even on their radar to to go to the gym or eat healthy. Like I didn't do any of that. I was eating like mac and cheese every meal I could. So, you know, it's just like all of these things. It's just, it's, it's so interesting to see our culture and how that's kind of shifting and people's mindsets are changing to, well, how can I be preventative now so that hopefully in the future, you know, I can be maybe saved from whatever other fate would have come into play. So health is very scary. Stephanie and I talk a lot about it. Oh, yes. It is a deep, dark hole. And if you fall into it, you could really just Alice in Wonderland your way down. But that's why conversations are so important because it is like we're not the only two people in their 30s that have thought about like, well, what happens if Mm -hmm. like there's a ton of people that are our age that have thought, well, what happens if but we want to give them the knowledge of like and ourselves the knowledge that we can walk away with and start making changes for the better because it's it's important. So then are there different types of breast cancer? It's it's not all one type, right? No. No, you know, cancer in general, we kind of talk about it as this like big conglomerate this this thing, right? But there's actually hundreds of cancers out there and even a- among breast cancer, there's many, many, many different types. You know, there's more common types. I would say the two most common are called DCIS, which is ductal carcinoma in situ. That's like the earliest stage. It's sometimes called precancer. It's sometimes called stage zero breast cancer, but it just means that the that the cancer itself is still within like its little cell wall. It hasn't kind of busted open yet. And then more commonly is invasive ductal carcinoma, which is IDC. That is when the cell wall has bust open and the cancer has started to move into the surrounding area of like the breast tissue. And that is when it can also start to spread to like the lymph system and into potentially other areas of the body. But there are other forms. There's one similarly called ILC, invasive lobular. There's inflammatory breast cancer. And then even within 
all of these, there's these like subtypes of more kind of the minutia of the tumor itself. And and one of the hard thing about breast cancer is that it's so common. But one of the benefits to a more common cancer is that there's a lot of research. So the good thing is they are learning all the time how to understand individual, you know, the different types of breast cancers. They have different treatments for different types of breast cancers. They know what works for some, what doesn't work for others. So yeah, there's, there is a lot to know and that kind of stuff. It's like, unless you're diagnosed, it's important to know different signs and symptoms so that if you have concerns, you know what you're looking for. But without a diagnosis, like, you know, having to kind of understand and worry about the different types isn't quite, isn't quite. It would just get overwhelming. It could. Yeah, yeah, it could get really overwhelming. Yeah, Yeah. and that's falling down the Alice in Wonderland hole and (laughs) and smack dabbing the bottom. You're not like met with a plush pillow. Well, since we were talking about prevention awareness and what we can do to keep track for ourselves and our bodies. I mean, I know one of the big things that people just don't do is what your doctor or your gyno tells you to do every time you see them. They're like, have you, do you do your monthly checks? And most people I used to be like, nah, like I just didn't even think about it. I've been much better. Like I know that when I have my period is when I check. So that way once a month, I know that I'm like checking in the shower to make sure. But what are some, what are some other ways Yeah. And I would like to touch on what breast cancer prevention really means. So when we're talking about something like cancer, there really is at this point, no true prevention, you know, prevention means to prevent something from happening, right? So when we're talking about prevention with cancer, we're really talking about risk reduction, we're talking about the reducing the chances of this occurring. And so I just like to to state that because, you know, it is important to realize that there are things you can do, and it's important to do them to, to reduce your risk. But you know, should God forbid, should something happen, like cancer isn't a truly, it's not a fully preventable thing. So you know, it's not your fault if something thing happens. And there's only so much that is within our control. But the things that are really, you know, really important, we know that diet and exercise are two critical factors in health in general. We know that exercise does play a really strong role. I think they recommend like 150 minutes of cardio a week. So that's like 30 minutes, five times a week or three 50 minute sessions. But, you know, getting your heart rate up, getting your body moving is one of the best things you can do in general when it comes to lowering your chances of having a breast cancer diagnosis, eating well. And and by that, I don't mean avoiding sugar. I don't you know, mean cutting out all carbs. I like, I mean, eating a balanced diet, eating lots of good fruits and vegetables, like, you know, eating whole foods, keeping your diet in that kind of 80, 20 of 80% nice, healthy proteins and, and complex carbs and grains and vegetables. And by no means am I a nutritionist. I mean, this is just kind of really general stuff that we all really know. And then 20% indulgence. I will say that there is a relatively well-known link between alcohol and breast cancer, that alcohol does increase the risk of breast cancer. That's a hard one for a lot of us. And I know women who, when they've gotten breast cancer, have given up alcohol altogether. I know some who who refuse. For me, again, I try to make it a balance because for me, it really is about, I recognize that there are things that I can do, but there's only so much in my control. I mean, even, even vegan sober athletes can get cancer. 
right? Mm-hmm. So like, you know, so it's it's really looking at your own kind of life and saying, well, where could I, maybe I could, you know, add a little more activity or maybe I could add some more vegetables. I always like to say add good stuff before taking away, you know, quote unquote bad stuff. I think it's a little bit easier to do. And I think the more we give ourselves things versus restricting ourselves from things, the more likely we are to actually do them. Hydration, staying hydrated. Our body is like almost all water. And that's, you know, it it needs that to function. So our body is always trying to achieve the state of homeostasis, which is a perfect balance, right? And so if you think of yourself like a plant, what do you need? You need water, you need nourishment, you need some sunshine. Plants maybe don't need exercise, but we do. Sleep. Sleep is really, really critical. Sleep is when we are, we're all familiar with the idea of fight or flight. Well, the opposite of fight or flight to our nervous system is rest and digest. And so when your body is in a state of relaxation, especially in sleep, when it's, you know, very calm, that's when like, you know, kind of your cellular repair and healing happens because it doesn't have your body, your nervous system doesn't have to focus on everything else that it worries about when we're in our waking hours. So sleep is really critical. And then I would say the best thing you can do, because it really is all about early detection when it comes to something like breast cancer, the sooner you find it, the better the odds are that it's going to be treatable possibly with less interventions and hopefully have a better chance of it not coming back. And so you mentioned self-breast exams. There's a movement out there called Feel It on the First. If that helps some people, like the first of every month, do your breast exam. I know sometimes they do talk about around your period, like depending, because you might, you know, especially when we're younger, we tend to have dense breasts. You might have more cysts. So for me, one of the things I talk about is knowing your body. I worry a little bit less about always being regimented and being like, okay, I'm going to feel my breasts on the first of the month, or I'm going to feel them around a cycle or something like that. And even this is true, even before I had breast cancer, but but still on this side, because I have implants now, but I have to be aware. I have to feel for things. I touch myself a lot. I look at myself. You know, I've realized at times it's really easy to like wake up in the morning, take off your pajamas, get in the shower, do your thing, get out of the shower, throw your robe on, throw your clothes on without ever maybe ever actually looking at your body and feeling and looking visual observation and physical palpation are the two ways that someone is likely to notice if something is off. There's, I think, I think there's an organization called Know Your Lemons and they do some great things with like visuals of, you know, different things to look for, right? It's not always a lump. It could be that there's skin changes on the breast. It could be that the nipple starts to maybe invert or look funny. It could be that there's some redness or a rash, like anything that feels off is worth bringing up to your doctor. And I think one of the biggest challenges that young women face, especially in their 20s and 30s, and especially without any kind of family history, is there are still a lot of people who get dismissed. And there's still a lot of misdiagnosis that happens or late diagnosis because they're told, oh, you're too young for that. And the truth is no one is too young for that. So I think, you know, knowing your body so that you can actually say to someone like, no, this isn't normal for me. This is different and advocating for yourself to continue. Like, like if you feel like something's wrong, then make sure you're getting that attention so that you can rule out something potentially serious. All of those were really good answers. And I had this thought, it was funny, Steph and I were talking in the car, we talk every day, but she was like, 
wow, we've done a, a lot of these. I was like, yeah. She was like, I think we should like cheers to the fact of 71 interviews that we've done on just yeah. cycle chats. And I had this thought going on and I was like, wow, so cool that I get to do this and learn information. It's just amazing. Like never in my life would I be like, yeah, Emily, you get to do this for, you know, your part-time job. It's just, it's very, very cool. So thank you. Cause it's just, it made my brain very happy. Awesome. I'm glad. And one thing I'd like to offer too, just while we were talking about self-breast exams is, you know, sometimes people are inclined not to do them because one, they might be afraid of what they find Two, it could feel like a chore. I mean, like you said, right. I mean, even sometimes brushing our teeth feel like a chore and most of us do that at least once, probably twice a day, trying to find a way to be connected with your body in a way that feels more loving, or I love to think of it as like a ritual. So whether that is, you know, using your favorite cream or body oil or whatever it is, and actually, you know, not just slathering it on, but like doing it with intention. And that can include your breasts too. You know, you know, maybe you do a dry brushing thing before bed, or you like to take a bath, like turn it into something that actually becomes part of the way you care for your body. You made me think earlier when we were talking about being young and kind of not really thinking ahead or, you know, not, not realizing we, what we do now can determine our future too. I feel like this is changing, but I know in my generation, and I think for generations above me, we're not taught to think of our bodies, like care of our cars and our houses that we do our bodies. You know, your body is the longest relationship you will ever have in this earthly life. From the time you come into the world until the time you leave it, your body is your physical home. You literally cannot live without it. And yet, you know, we do all the things, right? We burn the candle at both ends. We power through. We don't like we put things into our body that wouldn't, you know, certainly wouldn't sustain a plant right? Just because we can process it doesn't mean we should. And I, I love pop and I don't, you know, I try not to drink a lot of it, soda, whatever, depending on where you're from. But like, you know, I love candy. I don't eat a lot of it. Like there's all this stuff out there that you can still enjoy. But when you really think about it, it's like, is this really food? Is my body really meant to process this? Like limiting that kind of stuff because you got to take care of your body if you want it to take care of you. That's important. I think we forget sometimes that we're not invincible. And we also, it's easy to just get the fast food or it's easy to just go for the thing that we know is going to make us happy. But I have found, and because I, I have stints of being really good, healthy, exercising, eating well, and it's always really tough in the beginning, but then eventually you get used to it and you don't actually start to crave any of that bad stuff. And when you do have it, you're not eating so much of it like it's normal. You take a couple bites and you're like, yeah. I'm actually good. I just wanted to treat myself. So yeah. it just takes time to develop healthy habits like that. And like you said, if you want a, a little bit of pop here and there, go for it. If you want a, a bite of chocolate, go for it. It's when you overindulge, it becomes an issue. Yeah. And I think there's also something to take away. I think we need to work on the idea of assigning good and bad, yeah. uh, you know, terms yeah. to things, right? Like, like it's yeah. not bad. It's not good. It is what it is. But how does it make you feel in the long run? Or how does it make you feel? A lot of the times that stuff, you know, that we crave or that we want after you eat it, you're kind of like, Mm. wish I, I didn't feel as good as I would. Yeah. yeah. Like, uh, you know, or how is this going to make me feel in the long run? Is it going to give me, you know, I've, I love when I travel abroad in other countries, instead of calories, calories are called energy. So when you look at a wrapper, it's like, it's got this much energy. And I'm like, yeah, that's I what I love need. energy. That. Right. And, you know, and so that's what I find as I, as I continue to get older. And I wish this is something I wish I had thought 
of when I was much younger is like, you know, I do look at food and water and exercise and sleep. And I look at this and I think, how is this going to serve me? Is this going to fill me up? Or is this going to take away from me? And I think that's where, you know, it's less about good and bad. And it's more about how's it going to make me feel the way I want to feel, or maybe the way, you know, the way I don't want to feel. Yeah. I, I love that. We always back in the, back in the day, we use the word selfish a lot. And we were like, wait a minute, selfish is such a negative connotations. We're like, what about this idea of like healthy selfish, where you take time for you because you need to, that's not yeah. being, being selfish, that's being healthy. We like to change the words. And then we were talking to somebody about self-objectification. And we were like, whoa, our brains were totally like blown, blown by this idea that, oh, objectification is bad, but self-objectification, hmm, not as bad, right? These like right. terms, it, it depends on, it's just very interesting, all of these like negative or positive things that we come up with. I think most things in life are neutral until we assign them a role. It like absolutely just exist. And until we give them the category, like chocolate is just chocolate until somebody goes, Ooh, chocolate mm -mm, can't do that. Yeah. Or like, you know, that's naughty. And it's like, is it though? Cause it kind of is just chilling. Chocolate just kind of like, is like, what's up guys. And we decide, especially with food. I think, I don't think there's, there should really be any, like, it's hard. I work in the beauty industry and I see that so mm. often too. Mm -hmm. It almost feels like a lot of the women I know will like go on these crazy diets and drink this tea and do all this stuff and I'm like guys just don't eat such massive portions like allow yourself to have a little bit of everything go for a walk like keep your body moving it's just so it makes me so sad when I see people especially women doing these insane diets like is that something you come up against having to battle with clients? Yeah, actually. So one thing that happens a lot, and and I love this conversation about good, bad, whatever, because I'm going to say something that might is probably pretty going to seem kind of shocking to some extent, but like even something like breast cancer, like I, I don't want to say that breast cancer is neutral, you know, for, for, for pretty much everyone, breast cancer is a problem, right? And it is a problem. I mean, it's, it's literally that you have a, a disease process that has to be removed. And it's a really challenging experience. I am not someone who will ever say breast cancer is a gift, but I will tell you there are people out there or cancer in general, there are people out there who will say that, that it, you know, shook them up out of a, a rut or it got them to change, you know, their, their health habits, or it made them go quit their job and start a new career, like whatever. So, I mean, even that, like for some people, there are positive outcomes from even something that seems to be such a negative experience. Asking about the diet with that, one of the challenges is that there is a common thread of people who go through breast cancer trying to figure out, I think one, what did I do? right? Like, I don't necessarily have that. I know what I did. I have a gene mutation that I didn't really have, have much, you know, I knew it was probably going to happen. But, you know, a lot of people want an answer as to why it happens. And so they go looking and then in that they want to take that control. And that's where they start to overhaul their diet, right? They think they have to go like vegan or they cut out certain things or they rail against sugar or they throw everything in their under the kitchen sink and in their cupboards, you know, their beauty like products out and trying to go completely green and clean and I always say that everybody gets to do this experience the way that's true to them. But sometimes what I see 
is people go so extreme because they're desperately trying to hold on to some level of control. And that's how it feels like they can do that. In my own life over the years, I've gone through phases, right? I've totally been like all crunchy and, and green. And then I've gone back to using whatever. And I'm probably somewhere in the middle now. Like I try to mostly use products that don't have as many chemicals and stuff in it. I was away. I was in in Europe for five weeks this summer and I ate and drank a lot, a lot, you know, now that's not my daily life at home, but I needed to make the most of that experience. And I wasn't going to deny myself, you know, while I was there. So I think, I think it becomes an effort to find the balance. One of the things I talk about with clients and self-care is it is an individual process. You know, self-care is such a buzzword and buzz term these days. And unfortunately, I feel like a lot of the time it just ends up kind of feeling like bull****. Future Emily um, gets to deal with it. No worries. Okay, cool. It ends up feeling like, I don't know, phony or unauthentic or something. But true self-care starts with individuality. It starts with knowing what your needs are, right? It starts with like, where are you at right now? Where do you want to be? What are your goals? Then I always advise people like, look at your interests, look at your values, like what's important to you. You know, if you're someone who values time in nature and being outdoors and you love certain activities, then it becomes, okay, what's available to you? right? How, how could you maybe if you're looking to increase your activity, instead of signing up for a gym, how can you maybe you can get out and go hiking or go walking, right? Like do something that's actually going to feel fun or that you're going to enjoy, especially for anyone who's actually already had a diagnosis or is in recovery, figuring out how to modify. I was talking to a client not too long ago, and we were talking about downhill skiing. And I was like, she loves to ski. And she's like, well, I can't really ski right now. Like I'm just my body's not there. And I was like, I get that. But maybe instead of throwing yourself down a double black diamond, what about snowshoeing or cross country skiing? Like, would that be more accessible when winter comes along, right? It doesn't mean you have to give up everything. It means taking a step back and figuring out what's going to be accessible to you now and what's going to get you a little bit closer to your goals. And then I think again, balance, moderation, baby steps, like all those cliches that are so really, really, really true. I always tell my students, like, there's a reason that people say these things so much. It's because they're true. (laughs) They're not just, you know, phony phrases or like silly phrases that somebody let to like, don't make a noise if you don't like what you eat because somebody else may like it, right? Like there's these really simple things that we learn later in life. You're like, oh, I guess that's what they meant. And you're like, oh, gotcha. That's why they tried to teach me that back in the day. I shouldn't poo poo on somebody else's pleasure. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So very important. Oh my gosh. We have literally so many more questions. It's, (laughs) I know future Emily is going to be like, well, I mean, present Emily is already like, well, we have to get you back for a part two. If you'd be honored and and interested, I I would love to to have you on again, especially next season when we start changing things around a little bit. I mean, Stephanie dropped the ball. So everybody knows that we're in the middle of a rebrand right now. I dropped the ball. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You dropped the the pin. I don't know. What's the saying for cats out of the bag? Cats out of the bag. You left the cat out of the bag. There we go. Yeah, 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 you didn't drop the ball. You let the ball. No, you let the cat out of the bag. And we are in the middle of a rebrand. So within 2024, the new show is actually going to have a segment where people get to write in questions or seeking advice. And I think that would be a really great section to be able to have on for part two so that we can maybe help some people that 
that are are looking for some answers. So I will we'll get that done. But anyway, just massive amounts of thank yous. I I will sing your accolades later, but I'm gonna start closing up just part one of our conversation because I I know there'll be a part two. I need to know what women empowerment means to you. Well, I think of it as in terms of my clients, obviously a lot, but it's about being educated and being able to make informed decisions. You know, with breast cancer in particular, like I said, control is, you lose so much more than your breasts and your hair. When it comes to breast cancer, you really lose a lot of control. Sometimes you lose choice, you lose a sense of agency. And so what I really strive for with my work is not only to help people like feel better physically, right? To like feel better in their bodies, connect with their bodies, but it's really to show them that there are things that are still within their control. Like my long-term goal is to have my clients hopefully like no longer need me, that they get to go back out in the world and kind of let breast cancer become something that happened to them, but not be all consuming. It's always with us, but we don't have to let it become who we are or steal who we are. And so empowerment to me is is exactly that. It's just really knowing who you are, knowing what matters to you, and then learning how to take action on it, whether it's a specific goal or kind of the big picture of your life. Great answer. All right. My last question for you, what advice would you give your 15-year-old self? I would say, well, an easy one is trust your instincts. Always trust your gut. Easier said than done, though. Easier said than done. And and the other one, you know, with my particular story is that, yeah, it may happen. You know, like for me, the breast cancer thing, like, yeah, it may happen, but you can and will come out okay on the other side and maybe even better than you ever were before. Awesome. (laughs) Yes, yes, and yes. Where our 15-year-old selves listen to us is really the the penultimate question is like, (laughs) we say all of these things and then I think 15, although I don't know, 15-year-old me would be like, well, you're covered in tattoos, so maybe you know what you're talking about. I'd oh, like 15 year old you would, have, would have been like, gosh, you're so weird. Yes. I will listen to you. Yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. You are exactly who I want to be when I look in the mirror. In some ways, 15 year old me would be like, wow, this is never where I thought we would end up. But I <laughs> also think, same, <laughs> but I think I would hope would see that it's exact, like, like that, that I never thought it could be this good, that I never thought life could be this good. And that I think I am in many ways, more like my 15 year old self in who I really am than I was like in my late 20s or my third like the older I get the more me I become again literally you just put into words what I have been feeling and thinking for many months now especially over the last three three four weeks wow I mean I couldn't even begin to tell you I'm like wow I'm like really more like who I used to be in because 20s I don't know her she was so, so lost. And now I feel like yeah. I'm getting back to the things that I really connected with when I was younger. This was fabulous. You're so well-spoken. I didn't really even have much to say during the interview because I was, I was listening. You were learning. I was learning. I was absorbing. I was like, this is awesome. I got a chance to look at your website and your Instagram and all of your social media. I mean, the things that you offer, it, it's a beautiful thing. So where can people find you? And can we expect anything in the pipeline that is all things? Yeah. Yeah. So the easiest place to find me is on my website, which is my name. It's amyhardle.com. 
And the thing I really have been working on is taking what I've learned from over a decade with this hands-on work of oncology massage and lymphatic drainage therapy and putting it into the self-care education online format. So how can I, you know, how can I teach women how to, you know, truly how to take care of their bodies after a breast cancer diagnosis through breast cancer and beyond. And so I, I actually have one workshop out right now that's dry brushing for breast cancer, but specifically how to use dry brushing, but if you've had a breast cancer experience, so it's making sure that it's, you know, not only effective, but also like relevant to your experience and safe because there are modifications that ideally should be made. And I'm going to be doing something similar, hopefully by the end of the year with a lymphatic drainage, like teaching people how to do their own lymphatic drainage support. So I'm just retooled my weekly newsletter and I'm doing it to feel like every week there's an educational, it's called the Sunday Self-Care Chronicles. And there's a tip like either a lesson or a you know, some sort of education on how do you just keep living when you've had a breast cancer diagnosis. So there'll be more to come. I love it. I mean, like I said, I'm going to sing your accolades just like millions of times. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for educating us. I feel so much better, like, and just lucky, like feel so lucky right now. I'm like in it. I'm like, wow, I get to do this with life. That's super cool. And 15 year old Emily would be like, man, you're rad. And I'd be like, yeah, I am. I can't wait to have you back. I have another opportunity that popped into my head as well. I'm sure Stephanie knows what I'm talking about. And everybody who's listening probably knows as well, but we can talk about that off camera and off mic. So just, just a million times. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I cannot wait to have you back on because there are literally so many questions that we just didn't get to that I, I can't wait for more. So If you are listening and it's your first time, welcome. We are Cycle Chats. You can find more about us on our website, www.cyclechats.com or follow us on Instagram at Cycle Chats, all lowercase, no space. Please get excited and look forward to the next Cycle Swaps episode that will be coming out with Janae from the Naked Mindset podcast. We had such a fun conversation with her that will be coming out this weekend. And also we talked a little bit about patient advocacy in this episode. If you want to know more information, we have a really, really great sync up episode with Laura Mayhofer all about patient advocacy. And I strongly recommend going back and taking a look at that. That is her sync up episode. I believe it's actually episode four of her sync up special. So as always, we hope you sync up with us next time. <laughs>